Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. We're kicking off season three with a crazy case about a serial killer couple who claim they were tasked with killing witches through psychic visions from God. Unlike most serial killers, these two had seemingly happy childhoods. Into adulthood, they almost lived normal, happy lives until they met each other and everything took a very dark turn. Susan Thornell Barnes was born September 14, 1941, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Susan's earliest memories were colored by World War II, but the war was far away and she lived a comfortable, privileged life due to her father's job as a newspaper executive. The war coverage sold newspapers, helping the Barnes family thrive during a difficult time in history. Susan spent her childhood in Arizona country clubs and high society parties. On paper, Susan lived a charmed life, but behind closed doors, Susan struggled with mental distress, audible hallucinations, and visions which she believed to be psychic powers. Experts believe she may have had schizophrenia, but she was never diagnosed. She believed she was seeing glimpses of the past or future, and it made her feel special and gifted. Her claims of visions and voices were largely dismissed by those around her as fantasy, but it was clear that she was odd and didn't really fit in. Susan felt detached from her wealthy family and never felt like she fit in with the fancy high society circles. In her teens, she did her best to play the part she played tennis, dressed in high fashion, and schmoozed with the other heirs of Arizona money. She learned to play the role laid out for her, but it never felt true to who she really was. In her 20s, she married a rich older businessman and even though we don't know his name, we do know they raised two children together. In the 60s, Susan felt drawn to the counterculture hippie movement sweeping the nation, but she continued on the prim and proper path set out for her, at least until she was 35. Something triggered Susan and all at once she started to rebel against her carefully curated life. She dove headfirst into free love, political revolution, and drugs. Well, that just goes to show that no matter how privileged you are, mental illness can affect literally anyone. If you don't maintain it and acknowledge it, one day it will show itself. I know it was the 50s and 60s, but seriously, ignoring mental illness in your kids does not make it go away. And clearly, this is a case where it all goes downhill. Oh, just wait. During this time, she also started researching religions, but she got easily bored and never got too deep into any research. She was most drawn to religious stories full of eccentric characters whose unusual spiritual talents elevated them to a place of power, control, and influence. These prophets often experienced visions or messages from God. She latched onto that idea as an explanation for her own special powers. She convinced herself that she was a prophet of God, but she didn't want to just follow an existing religion. She wanted to lead her own. She took bits and pieces from many different religions and formed her own beliefs, which she then started preaching as fact to anyone who would listen. Susan became obsessed with apocalyptic prophecy and believed it was her mission to bring about the apocalypse and root out the evildoers of the world. 
Her loved ones worried that she was becoming unhinged, but she ignored them and started distancing herself from everyone that didn't support her beliefs. Her husband did not approve of her affairs, drug use, or radicalization. He divorced her and she was left with her now teenage sons. Her kids worried that she was headed for a full-on mental breakdown, though, as her behavior got even more erratic. Susan started to worry that instead of a warrior of God, she might be a witch possessed by the devil. She saw a psychiatrist, but when she didn't improve, she suspected that the doctors were trying to take away her powers and her religious conviction, and were actually out to sabotage her. Her increasingly strange behavior pushed her children to go live with their father, and she never saw them again. Without her family, Susan fully immersed herself in a new lifestyle. She changed her name to Suzanne with a Z and spent all of her time partying and doing drugs. On Thanksgiving 1977, her life changed forever when she met the man she believed was her soulmate. Okay, well, it's common for people who are suffering from untreated schizophrenia to feel like they were called by a higher power to do something big on Earth. However, if she was going to change her name, why did she just change a letter? Right? Real creative. (laughs) So I have to know, who is this soulmate of hers? James Clifford Carson was born November 28, 1950 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. James came from a long line of gunslingers and sheriffs, some of the first to explore the Wild West. His father chose to buck tradition and become an oil company executive rather than go into law enforcement. James's childhood was similar to Susan's in terms of financial comfort, but Tulsa didn't have quite the same high society circles. James's life was carefree and blissful until he was suddenly diagnosed with a rare bone disorder called Perth's disease. It causes the pelvic bone to soften, causing him to walk with a severe limp. His parents were terrified and got him all the best doctors. The doctors forbid him from walking at all until the bones had time to repair and harden. Overnight, James went from an outdoorsy kid with a love of nature to a bedridden shut-in, and this lasted for three lonely years. With nothing else to do, James spent most of his time reading books on every subject. He especially liked reading about history, politics, and religion. Eventually, though, James became jaded and disappointed in the corruption of the American political system. He decided that all religion was foolish and corrupt, rejecting his own Jewish heritage. His new views alienated him from almost everyone in his conservative hometown. He gravitated to the hippie counterculture movement popping up around the United States. They accepted outsiders like him and would help him find his purpose. He embraced the anti-establishment movement and tried to inspire political unrest amongst his high school through protests and clubs, though he didn't get much interest from anyone. So they're one of the same two privileged adults who suffered from mental and physical trauma and decided to rebel against their traditional family values to join a hippie trend. Got it. Yeah, a lot of young people were joining the hippie movement back then, especially those that didn't feel like they fit in with their family's social circles. I mean, I don't blame them. I probably would have hopped on that bandwagon, too. The 60s were boring, man. In 1968, he traveled to San Francisco to participate in the Flower Power protest against the Vietnam War. He found belonging there and felt validated in his desire to bring change to the political system. 
His beliefs didn't waver when he went to the University of Iowa to study history and religion as a Chinese philosophy major. He was notoriously outspoken in class, especially about his unpopular anti-government opinions. James volunteered to help the campaign for Robert F. Kennedy in 1968, but was left devastated when RFK was assassinated. At that point, he lost faith in his cause and felt like nothing he could do would ever bring about political change. James felt lost and disheartened and started experimenting with drugs. At one party, he decided to take peyote, which caused him to experience hallucinations similar to LSD. He stumbled out into the street. It looked to him like the buildings and the people were pulsing around him. He staggered into a church where he had some kind of religious vision and completely fell apart. James put aside his previous dedication to atheism and decided he needed religion. In Christianity, he found a new community to give him the sense of belonging he desired. Around this time, he met his first wife, Lynn, and they began dating. In their sophomore year of college, they decided to get married and everything was blissful. After college, they moved to Phoenix, Arizona, where they welcomed a baby girl named Jen. They were both hippies when they met in college, but in Arizona, Lynn got a job as a schoolteacher and was trying to move on from that part of her life to a more professional lifestyle. James wasn't interested in that kind of lifestyle change, so Lynn worked, and he committed himself to being a stay-at-home dad while selling pot on the side. He was a devoted, loving father. His daughter Jen remembers he would braid her hair and read her books and shower her with love and attention. For a few years, everything was wonderful, but then James's personality began to change. He became easily angered and started hitting Lynn from time to time. Lynn held on a few more years, but his increasing drug use and violent tendencies became too much to take. The final straw was one night they were having a fight when he hit her and a glass flew out of her hand and shattered on the floor near Jen. The little girl was cut by the glass but not terribly hurt. That was it for Lynn. She packed their bags, took Jen, and left. Good mama. I understand and empathize with women who don't know how to leave a domestic violence situation, especially if they're the only ones being physically harmed. However, once your child is involved, game over. Take your baby and run. Absolutely. Her kid's safety came first, as it should be, and she did the right thing. No regrets there. How did James take the news? James had lost his family and felt completely empty. He started partying hard and taking any drug he could get his hands on. James and Suzanne ran in the same Scottsdale circles and were often at the same parties. 26-year-old James supplied the drugs to a lot of these parties, while 36-year-old Suzanne was a notorious guest and host of the best parties. On Thanksgiving night, 1977, the two finally noticed each other for the first time. Suzanne was high on acid when she locked eyes with James and felt her whole body tingle. She knew in that moment that this man was selected for her especially by God. She marched over to him and said, Your name is Michael, right? He said no, his name was James, but she looked him dead in the eye and told him God had told her his name was Michael after the Archangel. James didn't hesitate when she invited him back to her place. She put on a Grateful Dead record and danced for him in a drug-induced way that felt mystical to both of them. 
From that point on, he was Michael. Girl, God did not tell you a damn thing. That was that acid you were tripping on. (laughs) (laughs) Her body felt tingly, Sham. That couldn't just be all the drugs she was on. Um, Okay, and who picks names for people before ever meeting them? Like, hi, stranger. We've never met, but I've decided your name is Michael. I don't care what you think your name is. (laughs) So weird. And, like, everyone is your soulmate when you're on hallucination drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Okay, conjurers. Just so there's no confusion, we're going to call them by their chosen names for the rest of the episode instead of their birth names. Okay. So Suzanne and Michael became inseparable after that. Their whirlwind romance was fueled by hallucinogenic drugs and religious fantasy. Michael was eager to learn all about her religion, and Suzanne was eager to teach her new follower. Michael calmed Suzanne's fears of being a witch by assuring her that she was a yogi, someone blessed by God with second sight, and she was happy to accept the title. Michael's daughter, Jen, is quoted as saying, My father immediately became a different person with Suzanne. He had a new name, a new personality, and a new life. Jen stated that visiting Michael and Suzanne was like a horror movie. The walls were painted black and there was almost no furniture in the house. She slept on a sleeping bag on the floor. She was barely fed while she was there and her dad and Suzanne would just lay there passed out naked on their waterbed and she wouldn't be able to wake them up. She said her dad completely changed when he met Suzanne and was no longer loving and attentive to her. Jen tried to tell her mom what was happening, but didn't know how to properly communicate it to her. Then, after one weekend visit, Jen told her mom that Suzanne had hurt her. Jen had asked Suzanne to rub her back like her mom does as she falls asleep, but Suzanne didn't gently rub the little girl's back. She scratched five deep gashes into her while whispering that she needed to get the demon out of Jen. After her mother saw the wounds on Jen's back, the pair went into hiding. Lynn promised Jen she would never have to see Suzanne again. Yikes. This is why it's so important to know who's around your child. Once again, Lynn gets an applause for immediately removing Jen from a toxic situation. Yeah, I understand trying to be civil with your ex and wanting them to have a relationship with their kid. But yeah, she did the right thing pulling her daughter out of that situation. So now both of them lost their families. What's the point of saying? Exactly. So in the summer of 1978, the couple sold all of their belongings and hopped on a plane to Europe. It was a journey Suzanne had seen in a vision. She had seen that in Europe they would get married, have a baby, and gather followers to build their holy army. Once in London, they were unofficially married in their hotel room using a ritual they designed themselves. Following the ceremony, they adopted the last name Bear after Michael's love for the animal. By the time they left London, Suzanne was pregnant, and she felt like everything from her vision was coming together. When in Israel, Suzanne miscarried, and she was devastated by the loss of the baby. She declared the baby had been hexed by witches in Europe, and Suzanne started seeing witchcraft everywhere they went. Anyone who inconvenienced her or offended her was labeled as a witch. Suzanne claimed she had received a new vision. They were to become witch hunters and start a holy war to bring about the apocalypse. 
The couple returned to the United States and traveled in a nomadic lifestyle across the northwestern part of the country, getting a feel for where the witches were hiding. I can only assume she was on heavy drugs while pregnant. That also could have been the cause of something going wrong. Drugs like that may be fun at a festival, but using them regularly can really do some damage to your mind and body. And clearly it has with their new self-proclaimed witch hunter titles. You're probably right. But of course, she's not going to see how her own actions contributed to her loss. It must have been witches. Oh my gosh. So did they ever find these witches they spoke of? In 1980, the couple settled in San Francisco, positive they would find plenty of witches there. They were disgusted by the city overrun with sin. Suzanne hit up one of her acquaintances to find a party that night. When they arrived, Suzanne claimed to suddenly feel overcome with nausea and fear. Suzanne told Michael the party was full of witches. Across the room, Suzanne spotted 23-year-old aspiring actress Karen Barnes. She was beautiful and unconventional with her black dress and orange mohawk. Michael agreed that she had a good aura about her. Suzanne introduced herself and told Karen about her psychic gifts. Karen got excited and gushed that she was a psychic too. According to Karen's family, she was one of many in a long line of psychics in their family. They say she would have dreams and then they would come true. It never failed. Karen was an open-minded spiritual seeker and found Michael and Suzanne fascinating. Karen would always help anyone she could, so when Suzanne told her they didn't have a place to stay, she offered her own apartment. So Michael and Suzanne went home with Karen. I feel like everyone in the 80s thought they were psychic, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, they told Karen all about the witches and how San Francisco was full of them. She was fascinated by their mission to defeat evil. Suzanne even taught Karen some of the religious rituals they had made up. For a few weeks, things were great. It seemed like they had found a kindred spirit to join their cult. But then Suzanne started getting irritated by Karen's increased confidence and became jealous over Michael's flirting. According to the rules of their religion, Michael could take more wives if he wanted, and she would have to support him, but she wasn't about to share her soulmate. Suzanne started dropping hints to Michael that she was starting to feel uneasy about Karen. She subtly convinced Michael that Karen was a witch and that she had been draining Suzanne of her strength since they moved in. On the night of Ronald Reagan's election, Suzanne and Michael claimed to feel a great evil come over the country. Michael told Karen they felt like Reagan was the devil, and they claimed Karen wasn't surprised and agreed that she also thought he was the Antichrist. Suzanne used this as an opportunity to convince Michael that Karen was the most powerful witch in San Francisco, and she was in league with Ronald Reagan. Karen denied the accusations, of course, and a fight raged. Suzanne ordered Michael to kill the witch, and he hit Karen over the head with a cast iron frying pan. When that didn't kill her, he grabbed a knife and stabbed her 13 times in the neck and face until she lay dead in a pool of blood on the kitchen floor. 39-year-old Suzanne told 30-year-old Michael they had accomplished what they had come to San Francisco to do and now it was time to move on. They hitchhiked north to continue their witch hunt. 
Lovely. So she died over jealousy, and Suzanne used witchcraft as her excuse to take her out. Sounds like something we've heard before in our previous cases. Witches, demons, whatever. Killers will find an excuse when they want one. Oh, yeah. So how long was it before Karen was found? Not long. On March 6, 1981, Karen's landlord and a plumber came by for a scheduled routine check. They went into the basement apartment and found Karen on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood loosely covered in a blanket. Police were sure this had to have been done by someone she knew because there was no forced entry, money was still in her purse, and no signs of sexual assault. The cast iron skillet used to crush her skull was found in the kitchen, but the knife used was never found. Investigators also found random religious symbols painted on the walls like something out of Helter Skelter. Investigators soon learned about Suzanne and Michael Bear, a married couple that had been living with Karen recently. Karen's mom informed them that Bear was not their real last name. Karen had mentioned that their last name was actually Carson. Suzanne and Michael were nowhere to be found, and while police kept an eye out for similar murders in the area, no leads came up and the case was set aside. Sham will tell us what this crazy couple did next after this short break. Suzanne and Michael were headed north and soon reached Grants Pass in southern Oregon and stumbled upon a vacant cabin in the woods. It was a rickety old shack, but to them it felt like they had found paradise. After a while, they ran out of food, supplies, and drugs. Michael said he would travel to Los Angeles to gather more supplies because he had drug connections down there. Suzanne didn't like it, but she admitted there was no better option. She declared that she had a vision that the lack of food was a sign that she was to partake in a spiritual fast while Michael was gone, and would only break her fast once he returned. He thumbed a ride to LA and arrived in May of 1981. He headed straight to Venice Beach where he could score some drugs. Without Suzanne's guidance, Michael got sidetracked and forgot about the food and drugs to take back to Oregon. Instead, he stole paper and markers and began making signs warning the world of the evil Ronald Reagan. Hanging up the signs inspired Michael to start writing a manuscript about him and Suzanne's mission. He condemned politicians, government bodies, and religions he felt had too much power and accused them all of making deals with the devil. Through his writing, he felt like he had discovered his true purpose, which was to prophesize his message to the world and make them see the truth. It was several days of busy writing before he remembered that Suzanne was back in Oregon starving and he was supposed to be bringing food and drugs for her. Along the way back to Oregon, he dug through dumpsters for food to take north with him. Back in Oregon, Suzanne was in a delusional state from the lack of food which she interpreted as her powers growing stronger. She saw the devil, demons, and witches and ghosts all coming to torment her and try to possess her. Michael returned to Suzanne, screaming at things he couldn't see. With some food and weed, she calmed down and came back to reality. <laughs> he got distracted and decided to write a book, completely forgetting about his wife starving and hallucinating back in Oregon. Top notch. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know about you, Steph, but weed always brings me back to reality. <laughs> <laughs> reality is a bit of a stretch when it comes to Suzanne. Did they make Oregon their home base then? No. In the summer of 1981, a park ranger discovered the couple squatting in the cabin and ordered them to leave. 
It was the end of their paradise, but they looked at it as a sign from God and that it was time to get on with their mission. They visited their weed-growing friends in Northern California, and they asked for a stash they could sell for income along their journey, promising to pay them back later. For the rest of 1981, they traveled through Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and Colorado selling pot, while Michael worked on his manifesto. They wrote about their mission and the best way to find and kill witches. He ranted about the current world order and how governments and religions were under the control of the devil. He claimed the only way for change was through the holy war and the apocalypse. The apocalypse was to come via a nuclear holocaust. The book described how to bring the Holocaust about. It also included a hit list of people they thought were evil, including Johnny Carson and Ronald Reagan, whose first, middle, and last names they explained each had six letters. They believed this 666 name connection proved that they were evil. In early 1982, the manuscript was complete and they ran out of money, so they headed back to California. Hold on. Anyone with six letters in each of their names is evil? That's a new one. I mean, if your name's six letters long, let your parents know at the next Thanksgiving that because of them, you're considered a witch. (laughs) Something to keep in mind as we name our future children? (laughs) Okay, okay. So they're headed back to California. Yes, and in California, Michael and Suzanne were picked up by a man named Patrick, who not only offered them a ride, but told them they could live in his treehouse. The best part of the deal for the broke couple was that he accepted weed as payment for rent. Patrick had something of a hippie commune on his property, but it didn't take long for Patrick to regret his invitation to Suzanne and Michael. Suzanne was too aggressive and bizarre for their peaceful little community, so they didn't make any friends. Suzanne confided to Michael that everyone in the community was a witch. Surprise, surprise. So when Patrick brought a friend with him to order them to leave, they didn't argue. The next day, Michael and Suzanne returned with their homemade Molotov cocktails, intent on burning the witches. They lit the bombs, set the treehouse on fire, and next went after Patrick's cabin. The door was locked, so they set the porch on fire and moved deeper into the community. Along the way, they poked around in an empty tent and found a 38 caliber pistol and took it. After tossing one last bomb into the tent of a witch they particularly didn't like, they felt their job was done. Amazingly, no one was hurt in their fiery attack. In the spring of 1982, they found themselves in Humblock County, California. The place was full of doomsday preppers and marijuana farms, perfect for their lifestyle. They got jobs at a marijuana farm, but all of their co-workers described them as lunatics and troublemakers, always looking for a fight. Most people just avoided Michael and Suzanne, but then 26-year-old Clark Stevens arrived on the farm. Clark was a friend and recent business partner of the owner of the farm. Michael and Suzanne disliked Clark immediately. They found him arrogant and rude. It wasn't long before disagreements between Michael and Clark turned into screaming matches. At one point, Clark insulted Suzanne while Michael wasn't there and it pissed her off. She rushed to tell Michael about Clark's disrespect, claiming that by insulting her, it was Michael's duty to defend her honor. She claimed God gave them a gun for this very reason. She insisted that this was a test. Anyone Suzanne doesn't like, they try to kill. She's like the most dangerous, spoiled brat in existence. I mean, she seems easily offended, which is a dangerous personality trait in itself. Yeah. 
Was Clark lucky enough to avoid her wrath? Of course not. So one morning in May of 1982, the couple bumped into Clark on the farm. They told him they needed to talk to him in private and led him to a far corner of the property. Once alone, Michael pulled his gun and shot Clark several times. Suzanne insisted they burn the body to make sure the witch was really dead. Suzanne pulled out some kerosene and watched his body as it burned. They buried him in fertilizer so the dogs couldn't sniff him out and went back to work. After a few days, their paranoia got the best of them and they decided it would be better to run. While trying to hitch a ride, a police car pulled up beside them. The trooper wanted directions to the very farm where they had buried Clark. The couple lied and gave them bad directions to give themselves a head start. They went deeper into the woods to avoid capture and camp for the night. But they panicked when they woke up to a search party combing the woods. The search party was actually looking for a lost hitchhiker, but Michael and Suzanne were sure the authorities were looking for them. They bolted, leaving their belongings behind. Suzanne ran deeper into the woods until the searchers were out of sight, while Michael ran towards the road. Search dogs quickly found their backpacks, and inside, investigators found bullets, pot, and a stolen ID from someone named Richard Aretta, and a manuscript with the author's name as Michael Bear. The cops weren't taking that high-profile hit list lightly and reported it to the FBI. A few days later, a dog was spotted playing with what looked like a ball, but upon closer look, it was actually a human skull. Under the charred body was Clark's wallet, making it easy to identify him. While investigators were interviewing Clark's co-workers, Michael and Suzanne's names kept coming up. They were quickly becoming the prime suspects. They had good reason to be paranoid, but no one even knew that they should be looking for them yet. They had so much time to get far away and move a little bit smarter. (laughs) They don't exactly seem like the sharpest tools in the shed. (laughs) Where did they end up? When Michael and Suzanne ran in different directions, Michael hitched a ride all the way down to L.A. But he wasn't there more than a few minutes when the police officer arrested him. Michael was sure it was all over, but when they didn't find the gun in his pants, he stashed it in the back of the cop car. They had no idea who Michael really was. He gave the fake name Richard Aretta, and they had only picked him up because he had matched the description of a rape suspect. They sent his picture over to the rape victim, who said Michael wasn't the guy, so they let him go. After Michael was long gone, the officer found the gun Michael had stashed in his back seat. He had a gut feeling that letting him go was a big mistake. They ran the gun for ballistics, and it matches the gun used to kill Clark. They put out an APB for Richard Aretta, since that was the name he had given them, and the FBI immediately recognized it as the name on the stolen ID found with the manuscript threatening to kill the president. While law enforcement was working on putting the pieces together, Michael and Suzanne met in Sonora as their prearranged spot. Michael wanted to lay low until the heat died down, but Suzanne insisted that her visions were signaling the beginning of a holy war against evil. She convinced him that they couldn't let up now, when they were so close to bringing about the apocalypse. In the end, they agreed that it was worth it, even if they had to become martyrs to do it. Suzanne's psychic compass directed them to Portland, Oregon. But after a few weeks, they had worn out their welcome at their friend's house, and Suzanne hadn't sensed anything special there. 
Since Michael's gun had been left with the police back in LA, they stole a 38 caliber pistol from their friend and headed back down to California. Jeez, they keep catching lucky breaks. Police had Michael in custody, didn't search him, obviously, and just accepted his fake name as fact and let him go? That's insane. Well, that's part of being a privileged individual in America. (laughs) To an extreme with these two. Did they find any more witches? By 1983, the couple was getting discouraged that they hadn't had the opportunity to kill any more witches. On January 11th, they were wandering down a highway near Bakersfield as cars blew past, not willing to pick up an unkempt, creepy-looking couple. Suddenly, a truck made a quick U-turn and came back their way. The driver was 30-year-old John Halier. He was on his way to visit his friends in Santa Rosa and offered to take the couple at least that far. John had left home as a teenager to join the hippie movement. He craved independence, as so many teenagers do, and fell into the free-loving, drug-filled lifestyle. Back then, his main way of getting around was hitchhiking, and even though he had turned his life around now, he still remembers when he was the one desperately thumbing for a ride. He always tried to help anyone he could. Before they got into the truck with John, Suzanne whispered to Michael that that man was a witch and they needed to kill him. The couple was rude and complained about everything, from his taste in music to his driving. When John's leg accidentally brushed against Suzanne's, her anger raged and she knew in that moment that they were definitely going to kill him. They decided to wait and take him up on his offer to let them crash on his friend's couch for the night, though. The next morning, they all piled into the truck again and had only driven a short distance when Suzanne gave Michael a look, signaling that this was the time. Michael reached across the seat and yanked the steering wheel hard to the right. John fought to regain control, but threw his hands up when Michael pulled out the gun. When the truck came to a complete stop on the side of the road, John jumped out in an attempt to escape, but Michael and Suzanne were right behind him. Michael paced with the gun squarely aimed at John while Suzanne came up from behind him with a knife. Suzanne stabbed John in the back and stepped out of the way to give Michael a clear shot. Michael hesitated, and John ran around the truck trying to keep it between him and his attackers. For several minutes, the three of them ran around the truck in circles. The whole time this was happening, onlookers slowed down in their cars to see what was going on before driving off. Suzanne managed to stab John a few more times before Michael finally pulled the trigger. With Suzanne egging him on, Michael shot John several times. One of the passing drivers managed to call the police, and Suzanne panicked when she heard the sirens. She dragged John's body off to the side of the road and jumped in the driver's seat of John's truck. Michael dove into the passenger seat, and they took off. Police found John's body within minutes and alerted all police in the area that the killers were driving the stolen truck. A high-speed chase lasted the length of two counties before Suzanne lost control of the truck and drove into a ditch. The couple darted from the truck into the nearby woods, but didn't make it far before the police caught up to them. John was just being a nice guy. Suzanne was so desperate to kill another person, she picked the first person they met and would have found any excuse to murder them. Seriously, never pick up hitchhikers. I find it so unfortunate that the person performing the good deed always gets harmed in the hitchhiker cases. Like, some of y'all are making it much harder for those who truly just want to ride. (laughs) At least they were finally caught. Please tell me they didn't get away with this. Thankfully, no. 
At a pretrial hearing, Michael confessed to killing John, which was never really in doubt with so many witnesses, while Suzanne sat silently next to him. Michael claimed that they killed John because he was a black witch, a triple Scorpio, and was making sexual advances towards Suzanne by touching her leg, an offense punishable by death under their cult religion rules. He shocked everyone in the courtroom when he alluded to killing two more people in California, but said he would only confess at a public news conference. They granted him the press conference on March 10th of 1983, thinking he wanted to shock the nation with some additional confessions. What they didn't anticipate was that he would use the platform as a way to spread the word about his and Suzanne's religion and their holy cause. Michael rambled on for six hours about their twisted beliefs and reasonings for the murders. All the while, Suzanne sat smiling next to him, looking deranged. They showed no remorse and actually expected to be seen as heroes for killing witches. During the press conference, he confessed to killing Clark, who he explained was a demon, and a petty witch who wanted to live off Suzanne's life force. Finally, he confessed to killing Karen, saying she had put a hex on Suzanne, so he hit her in the head and stabbed her twice. Karen had been stabbed 13 times, leading everyone to assume Suzanne had finished the rest of the stabbing. When asked if they had killed anyone else, they refused to answer. After this press conference, the media started calling them the San Francisco Witch Killers. Sham, you know more about astrology than me. What is a triple Scorpio? (laughs) So a triple Scorpio is someone whose sun sign, moon sign, and rising sign are all born under Scorpio. Honestly, they're known to have intense personalities, but not in a bad way. They just feel things deeply. Someone's astrological signs are never a good reason to hurt them. Come on. Um, And can you imagine having to listen to six hours of their demented rambling? At least they confessed to all three murders, though. They pled guilty after all that, right? You would think. In June of 1984, despite the press conference confessions, both pled not guilty to the murder of Karen. Regardless, on June 2nd, they were found guilty and sentenced to 25 years to life for her murder. The next year, they were tried for the murder of Clark. Their lawyers unsuccessfully tried to argue that Michael killed Clark for sexually attacking Suzanne. No one bought the defense, and they were again found guilty and sentenced to another 25 years to life for Clark's murder. Two years after that, they pled guilty and received another 25 years to life for the murder of John. During their trials, friends of the couples testified on their behalf. These people claimed to be warlocks and testified as expert witnesses. They argued that Michael and Suzanne had acted in self-defense against deadly psychic attacks. The circus of a trial came to an end with Suzanne interrupting the closing arguments by yelling, and I quote, What is my crime? To be beautiful? To be an artist? End quote. Then Michael shouted, Death to the Queen, long live the IRA. (laughs) Authorities think they may be responsible for nearly a dozen other murders in Europe and other parts of the United States, but they don't have enough evidence to bring charges. The victims' families are sure they have killed more people, but figure the authorities didn't pursue charges because the couple would spend the rest of their lives in prison anyways. I 100% believe that there are more victims. All that time in Europe hunting witches and then traveling across multiple states writing that manuscript, there is no way they restrained themselves that long. 
See, one part of me believes that there was more, but the other part feels like they would have snitched on themselves unintentionally a long time ago. True. They did like to brag. 75 years to life should do it. They'll never get out. Hopefully. (laughs) Michael and Suzanne weren't supposed to be up for parole until 2038. But in 2015, they were almost released. Prisons were so overcrowded in California that a decision was made to start an elder parole program. This program would allow all prisoners over the age of 60 who had served more than 25 years to have a parole hearing. In a statement to the Daily Beast, Jen Carson stated, You don't address mass incarceration by releasing the less than 1% of prisoners who are serial killers. My father, Michael Bear Carson, hunted humans. He is a predator who would kill again. I oppose my father's parole. Jen even said that her father has bragged about his murders to her and talks about himself as though he is some kind of political prisoner of war. Michael, who was 64 years old, refused to renounce his beliefs and showed no remorse for the murders he committed. The parole board denied parole for Michael for 10 years. He will not be automatically scheduled for a hearing until approximately May 27th of 2030 but he can petition the board for an earlier hearing if he can present evidence of change in his beliefs and actions. Suzanne was 73 years old and seriously thought about trying to get paroled, but there was so much public outrage at the idea of her being released that she eventually retracted her request to be released entirely. Her next hearing will be set for December 2030. She has also shown no remorse for her actions. I agree with his daughter, Jen. If the prisons are too crowded, let all those people locked up for petty drug charges go, not the serial killers. There are people locked up for life over weed right now, and they should be first in line. Absolutely. All of this must have had a big impact on Michael's daughter. Clearly, she didn't stand by him because she petitioned for him to be kept in prison. Well, Michael's daughter Jen was eight years old when her father and stepmother were arrested. Her mother tried to protect her from the news coverage, but she was curious and found all the information she could. Jen remembers thinking that she was the daughter of the devil and would probably hurt people too. She lived in fear of everyone and herself, thinking that if her once-loving father could be a killer, anyone could be. As she was growing up, she made multiple suicide attempts and tried to keep people from finding out who she was related to. When she was 23, she decided to visit her dad in prison for the first time in 15 years. During that visit, he rambled for three hours and told her he murdered one victim because he had messed with Suzanne. Her father sent her letters that were positive and loving until she spoke out about her desire for him to stay in prison at his parole hearing. It was at that point she said his letters became scary. Jin will forever be haunted by what her father did. She has tried to make amends with the families of his victims. Some won't meet with her, but Karen's sister Lisa agreed. Lisa assured Jen that it wasn't her fault and that they wouldn't hold her responsible. What her father did has informed the course of her life. She explained that one of Charles Manson's sons killed himself, and so have many other children of infamous killers. After her own difficult battle, she chose life. She demanded treatment for her mental health in the same stigma-free manner that she would seek treatment for a chronic physical illness. We aren't ashamed to have asthma. Why should we be ashamed to have depression and complex PTSD? She also decided to help others. She earned an undergraduate degree from Baylor University and a master's degree in counseling from George Washington University. 
She worked with high-needs kids for nearly two decades in public schools as a teacher and a counselor. She then became an advocate for the 1 in 40 kids who have a parent incarcerated in America. This couple stole the lives of at least three innocent people at the whim of Suzanne's twisted delusions. Karen, Clark, and John could never have predicted that accidentally offending Suzanne would cost them their lives. There were red flags that should have been taken seriously, but sometimes it's easier to ignore concerning behavior rather than get involved yourself. I don't know if anything could have stopped them back then, but if anyone in your life is acting strangely, I strongly suggest you reach out for help. NAMI offers support and education programs for families and individuals living with mental health conditions. NAMI recognizes that the key concepts of recovery, resiliency, and support are essential to improving the wellness and quality of life of all persons affected by mental illness. Find your local NAMI location at nami.org findsupport or call their helpline at 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Today I want to tell you how to make your own witch jar for protection from those who mean you harm. Witch jars can be used for a wide variety of purposes. Today we are only talking about one for protection. Start with a clean, cleansed jar that has a cork or lid. Add in rosemary for protection, eucalyptus to ward against negativity, sage for cleansing, and Himalayan salt to neutralize negative energy. On top of that, add an amethyst crystal and an obsidian stone for the strongest boost of protection. Put the lid on and seal the jar using melted wax. Once sealed, do not open the jar unless you want to break the protection spell. I love it. A nice witchy tip to start this season off right. That's right. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.